Before we begin, let me turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you um, for this time to worship you, that we can worship you through hearing from you through your word. We do ask for your spirit to illumine our minds, to grant us understanding that our hearts and minds may truly understand and grasp the truths that are contained in your word. We know that it's your word that sanctifies us. We know that it's the power of your spirit working in and through us that helps us to understand and know these things. And so we do depend upon you, and we give you thanks for how you work in each one of our lives. And so we thank you that we can now sit under your word and know that you will accomplish what you have for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 9, verses 9 through 24. Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Title this message, The Spread of the Greater Power. The Spread of the Greater Power. Have you ever been impressed or amazed by a magic trick? It's pretty cool to make something disappear or to pull a rabbit out of a hat. I'm sure we've been surprised and and even amazed at times with these types of tricks. And have you ever wondered, how did they do that? Because we want, our curiosity wants to know, how did they do that? How did they make that happen? And magic has captivated many people and many audiences over the years. From Houdini to David Copperfield, who I remember as a kid going to watch his show in, in Vegas with my uncle, to Penn and Teller, to more recent Chris Angel, if some of you have heard of him, David Blaine, these street music, uh, magicians. Um, there's also a show called America's Got Talent a show where they seek to discover talented people of all ages, whether it's singers, dancers, comics, ventriloquists, musicians, magicians, and more. 
But at the end of the season, there can only be one winner. And out of these thousands and thousands of auditions and people who come to this show to, to show their talents, at the end, again, there's only one winner. And this is the person who has impressed and fascinated and attracted the attention of the American audience the most. Uh, the season nine and season 13 winners of America's Got Talent, they were both magicians. They were both magicians. Matt Franco and Shin Lim. And now they headline sellout shows every week in Vegas. And so people are attracted. They're fascinated by, by magic. And it's been this way for a long time. Magic has a unique way of drawing people in and bringing them into this space of wonder and curiosity that is really appealing to us. It makes people believe what is perceived to be unbelievable or impossible. But do you know who is not impressed by these magic tricks? Yes, God, but do you know who else is not very impressed by these magic tricks? Whether it's an illusion or a setup or a a sleight of hand or a shift of focus or specifically designed props. It's the magician themselves. They know exactly how it's done. They know that they're tricking people. They're deceiving people. They're fooling people into believing their magic. And we are impressed until we go online and say, how is that done? And then once we watch it, we're, we're not that impressed anymore. When they go behind the scenes and show you how to pull a rabbit out of the hat or whatever it is, you're like, oh, that, that's what it was? Okay. You're no longer that impressed. Once you know how it's done or you're the one performing it, you, it, it's not that impressive. And today in Acts, we're introduced to a magician, to Simon, a man who is said to have practiced magic in Samaria and who was astonishing the people so much so that they were saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. They were attracted, they were fascinated, they were astonished by Simon's magic and his practice of magic, magical arts that they thought he was this great power of God. He had this power about him, able to perform these signs. He was also the only show in town, and he was the main attraction in Samaria. This was until, of course, Philip shows up, who was one of the seven men chosen to meet the needs of the Hellenistic widows in the daily serving food that we learn about in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. Again, not to be confused with Philip, one of the twelve apostles. Philip arrives in Samaria, and what does he do? He begins proclaiming Christ to them, chapter 8, verse 5. But not just proclaiming Christ, he was also performing visible, public, miraculous signs and wonders among them, verses 6 through 8, in order to authenticate and validate his message, the truth of God. Even Simon the magician ended up being amazed and is said to have believed. Simon, who tricked people with his magic arts, was unable to explain the power, the true power being demonstrated through and by Philip. The power of the word and the power of the spirit that was working in and through him. And like magic, where the one performing the magic knows that he is fooling people, deceiving people, tricking people, for Simon and perhaps maybe even some sitting here today, when it comes to our profession of faith, our claim to believe in Jesus Christ, Simon was also able to fool people as well with that. At least initially, he was able to fool them. But over time, your life will expose your heart and it will either reveal good fruit or it will reveal bad fruit. But the good news is that the power of God is for salvation. 
as long as there's still time, God is patient, demonstrating his loving kindness. That if you truly repent, if you truly believe in Christ, you will be saved. You will be saved. And here we see the spread of the greater power in Samaria. We see the spread of the greater power in Samaria. Stephen has just been stoned to death. Let's kind of backtrack and remember where we've been. Stephen has just been stoned to death. He was the first martyr in the church who died for his faith in Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, exalted Lord and Savior. He was a true messenger of God, a true witness of Jesus. He's a person who was full of the Holy Spirit. He was also willing to serve tables. He was active in proclaiming Christ, unwavering in the face of opposition. He's described as being full of wisdom. He's able to speak and live out the truth. He's described as being full of faith, unwilling to compromise his convictions. He's also willing to die for his faith in Christ. And he was full of grace, loving people, including his enemies, to the very end. And what Luke emphasizes about Stephen was not his courage, not his boldness, which was evident and what's a result of his unwavering obedience and commitment to Christ, but rather Luke emphasizes Stephen's confidence in the word of God, his confidence in the word of God and his dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit, as seen in his response to the Sanhedrin. He gave a a history of Israel with verse after verse after verse, demonstrating his belief in the promises of God and his trust and confidence in the word of God and the power of God to work through the preaching of the word of God to change hearts, to call people to repent and believe. And it was the death of Stephen, a faithful messenger of God and witness and testimony of Christ, along with persecution, that was the catalyst that launched global missions. It launched global missions. We have to remember that persecution for the believer is not just a possibility. It's not just a potentiality. It's a promised reality for us who call ourselves children of God and who are children of God. And this persecution was a stone that caused the ripple effect that would bring the gospel to Judea and to Samaria and to the rest of the world. What we have here in Scripture through Luke, we have to remember, is actual history. These aren't just stories for us that are made up to teach us a lesson. This is actual history and one that has great significance for the church. And Acts chapter 8 is one of those historical moments in early church history that demonstrates and continues the plan of God and the spread of the gospel. Yes, we're the beneficiaries of that now, as the Gentiles have been and were included from the early promises back in Genesis 12 to Abraham. But there's a history behind that. There's a plan of God that's revealed behind that, that gives us confidence. And God is making it evident that it's through the church that he is now going to do his work, and therefore how believers conduct themselves matters in relation to the spread of the gospel. How we respond to opposition matters. How we respond to persecution matters. How we respond to sin matters. How we respond to anything that would disrupt the unity of the church matters. How faithful we are, wherever we are, and in whatever circumstances God has us in, to proclaim truth and live out the truth matters. Our testimony matters. And Stephen's death led to a great persecution. And yet, despite this great persecution, God's mission advances as the gospel continues to spread, as the people of God are scattered to proclaim the good news. 
And this is in keeping with the commission that Christ gave in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. God's plan continues to move forward. And as the people of God are scattered and dispersed like seed, they went about preaching the word. They were evangelizing. And it says in chapter 8, verse 8, that there was much rejoicing in that city. Crowds were rejoicing not only because people were being healed, but because they were being born again. Because they were giving attention to what Philip was proclaiming. They were hearing the gospel. They were hearing about Christ. And Philip was doing this in Samaria, evangelizing a people that were considered half-breeds, viewed as outcasts to Israel. They were despised by the Jews because of their bloodlines, their intermarriage with the Gentiles. They were unclean. They were despised because of their religious syncretism, as we see here with their their belief in this practical magic, this demonic spirit from from Simon. But they were also, they were also not just mixed in their religion, but they were also mixed ethnically. And so this was what caused them to be outcast in Israel. And the Samaritans, again, were not just ethnically mixed and religiously mixed, but the Jews put the Samaritans on a level with the Gentiles, with the pagans. And so they had really restricted dealings with them. They wanted to interact with them. And so Philip's proclamation of Christ as Messiah to this despised people was a demonstration of the transforming power of the gospel that displays that the church is the first fruit of new creation, a new humanity, a beacon of hope to the world. The gospel, in other words, unites all people together in Christ. This wasn't just persecution that led to dispersion, but it was persecution that led to being scattered to Samaria among a people that the Jews could care less about. But as Christians, because of their new hearts and the power of the Holy Spirit within them, the gospel message was being proclaimed to those who were once viewed as outcasts, but now are viewed as the mission field. And so dispersion led to proclamation. God surrounds his people and moves his people to be in places where they need to be in order for those people around them to hear the gospel. God surrounds people with and moves people around to be in places where they need to be in order to, in order for those people around them to hear the gospel, to hear the truth of the word of God, to hear about Christ. And in these verses, Luke recounts the spread and impact of the gospel in Samaria so that we would see the power of God at work in true conversion. Luke recounts the spread and impact of the gospel in Samaria so that we would see the power of God at work in, in true conversion. We will see Simon's former influence. We will see the power of the gospel and we will see Simon's heart exposed. First in verses 9 through 13, Simon's former influence. Again, verses 9 through 13. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all from smallest to greatest were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. 
But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Notice that this is an account that is looking back at Simon's life. There was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic. This magic and magic arts have been cited to be a mix of science and superstition that combines astrology, divination, and occultic practices with history, mathematics, and agriculture. And whatever that resulted in, and whatever he was doing, it was working. It was working to capture people's attention in Samaria. And however, he was a charlatan, a fraud, an imposter who made money by his practice of magic through tricking and deceiving people. This is how he made his living. This is how he made a name for himself. And to a great degree, it was working. Notice verse 9. It says, He was astonishing the people. Verse 10 says, They all, from smallest to greatest, were giving him attention, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And verse 11, They were giving him attention because for a long time, because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. And this gave him a lot of pride. And if you look at, down at verse 9 again, it says that he was claiming to be someone great. And he did not mind being called the great power of God, placing himself in and really taking on the role of that position. We see in verse 10 and verse 11 that they were giving attention to him. But now with the arrival of Philip, it says in chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord same words, were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. So Simon was not, was for a time, the only show in town. And now, because of Philip's preaching the gospel and his performing of the signs and miracles and healings, he's sort of being pushed to the side. The people of Samaria were captivated by Simon's magic, but now they are more captivated by the miracles and message of Philip. There's a shift in power through the greater power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. While the people had been astonished with Simon, the miracles performed by Philip and his preaching the gospel turned them away from being impressed with Simon to being amazed with Jesus, to being amazed with Jesus. Simon had the people's attention. He had influence among the people. He had an identity that was tied to his practice of magic, and he made a good living through it. In his eyes, he had it all. And the people of Samaria were in the same boat of being lost and following after these evil practices and magic arts until the folly of worldliness and pride was exposed by the light of the truth of the gospel. Verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And we see, as with the, the day of Pentecost, that as people believed upon the name of Jesus Christ, they would be, therefore, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ to publicly proclaim their union with him. These always went together. You, you're a professing believer in Jesus Christ. You also get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ to declare that and to make that known publicly. We also see here the absolute necessity of proclaiming the gospel wherever God has us. Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 15. 
and echo what was read earlier as well. It says, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. In Romans ten seventeen, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Though persecution came and they were scattered, they didn't just go into hiding. They didn't stop their testimony. They didn't stop witnessing and proclaiming Christ. Guess what? They proclaimed Christ and people by the power of the Spirit were being saved through hearing the good news of Christ. This is what happened. Verse 12 said they believed because they heard the good news through Philip about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. The power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit is put on display and is at work through the testimony and witness of our lives and through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the means through which God has chosen to be the way whereby Christ's accomplished work upon the cross is applied to those for whom Christ has died. Christ has already accomplished salvation for those who are his upon the cross with his death, burial, resurrection to new life. Now he has called the church to go out, to scatter and to spread wherever we are, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, to declare the power of the gospel that will save those whom he has died for already. That is why the church exists. This is why the church is significant. This is why we play a critical and crucial role during this time. This is why God has chosen and called and saved the people for his own possession so that we would proclaim. Proclaim what? The excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, First Peter 2.9. And we see in verse 13 that Philip's ministry even had an impact upon Simon. Verse 13 says, Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Being a magician of sorts, he was drawn to the signs and miracles taking place through Philip. And it should be noted that while there is some indication of what the Samaritans believed from verse 12, namely the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, that when it comes to Simon in verse 13, we're not told about the content of his faith, but it simply says that he believed. So keep that in mind as we work through this passage. So we've just looked at Simon's former influence. Now we will look at the true and greater power, the power of the gospel in verses 14 through 17, the power of the gospel. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Chapter 8, verse 1, if you look there, says, A great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles remained in Jerusalem to be a witness to the Jews, to continue to hold out the hope to Israel, and so they stay in the city to continue to proclaim that there is still hope and to also keep things in order as the apostolic leaders of the church. 
So when news reached the apostles in Jerusalem that the people of Samaria had received the word of God, meaning they were born again by the Spirit of God through the word of God, they've repented and believed in Christ through faith, they sent Peter and John, the apostles who remained in Jerusalem. And it says that Peter and John came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, for he, referring to the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen upon any of them, them referring to those who received the word and were born again. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. That raises a lot of questions. A lot of questions. And what is happening here is similar to what happened on the day of Pentecost with the birth and establishment of the church. There were Jewish believers and disciples who were told to wait for the Spirit to come and to fill them. They were already born again, genuine followers of Christ, believers, but they were told to wait for the promised Holy Spirit to come and fill them, to indwell them, to take permanent residency in them. And so we see that here again with a different group of people, the Samaritans, the Samaritans. And when that happened, back in Acts chapter 2, there were visible, audible, undeniable signs that accompanied and demonstrated the power of the Spirit at work. God is doing something unique here. This was to demonstrate that the church is the institution and instrument of God and the authority of hope in this world during this time and to show that there is still hope for Israel, but not just for Israel, but for the whole world, which includes the Samaritans and includes the Gentiles. And as the church is being established through the spread and advancement of the gospel, through the faithful witness of the apostles and believers, there are unique instances and displays of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in order to demonstrate the inclusion of different groups of people other than the Jews and to show that they are all one in Christ and belong to one universal church of Christ. The book of Acts portrays the transitional ministry of the Holy Spirit. We know from John chapter 14, verses 17 to 27, that the Spirit is promised, that he will be with you and he will be in you. This is saying that the permanent indwelling or residency of the Spirit is going to come. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit. And it does in Acts. But there are four times where the Spirit does something unique. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, what we have here, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19. These are unique and significant events in salvation and church history and not the normal pattern that we see in the New Testament church where believers receive the indwelling Spirit at the moment of salvation and conversion. And we see that in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. In regard to believers, it says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And Titus chapter 3 as well, verses 5 and 6. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ our Savior. And so these are transitional movements of the Spirit in Acts. And these are seen during the establishment of the church to verify and validate the spread and advancement of the gospel geographically to all kinds of people into one body, the church, through one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
This is to demonstrate the unity of all people in Christ, in the church. So why was the promise of the Holy Spirit to the believers delayed in Samaria? Why did the Samaritans have to wait for the apostles before receiving the Spirit? By delaying the Spirit's coming until Peter and John arrived, God preserved the unity of the church. God preserved the unity of the, of the church. The apostles needed to see for themselves and give firsthand testimony as reliable and authorized witnesses on behalf of the Jerusalem church that the Spirit had come upon the Samaritans through the laying on of their hands. The apostles also came to authenticate Philip's ministry, not to take over Philip's ministry. And furthermore, the Samaritans needed to learn that they were subject to apostolic authority and they were linked together with Jewish believers into one body. There would not be a church for the Jews and then a, a separate church or another church for the Samaritans, but rather they are all one church. And so God did this to preserve the unity of the church and to make this instance a unique instance where they see the spread of the gospel to all kinds of people into this one body in Christ. And if you remember the history of the Jews and the Samaritans, they hated each other. At each stage when the gospel advanced over a major cultural and religious barrier, there was a special manifestation of the Spirit, as seen during the birth and establishment of the church, to show that there were no longer a difference between the Jew, Acts chapter 2, and Samaritan, Acts chapter 8, and Gentile, Acts chapter 10. They are all one in Christ. And this directly parallels the theme verse in chapter 1, verse 8, and characterizes the description of the church that the Apostle Paul gives in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what we see here is not the normative or prescriptive teaching of what is to be done. Rather, this is describing the unique work of God at key points during the establishment of the church. And so this is not teaching that you are to be baptized and then through the laying on of hands to receive the Holy Spirit as some false religions teach and practice. This is not teaching that there are people today who can bestow the Spirit through the laying on of hands. This was a ministry specific only to the apostles that has been accomplished and fulfilled. And this is also not teaching that baptism saves in any way. This is not teaching that baptism saves. In contrast to Simon's so-called power, we see the power of the gospel spreading through Samaria and the church growing and expanding as we see the power of the word and the power of the spirit at work to bring people who once hated each other into harmony and unity with one another. That's the power of the gospel. It unites all people together in Christ. And a question that still remains is, was Simon truly converted? And that's what we'll see next. Simon's heart exposed in verses 18 through 24. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. 
for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon's heart exposed. John MacArthur has said, quote, Whenever the gospel is preached, it will inevitably, inevitably produce both genuine saving faith and false faith. The seed of the word will fall on good soil and bad soil. There are those who have faith to the preserving of the soul and those who shrink back to destruction. There will be wheat and there will be tares. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, you will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. Chapter 8, verse 13 in Acts says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And the text doesn't say what he saw. When Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed, what did Simon see? Perhaps it's what we, they saw in Acts chapter 2, these visible, audible, undeniable signs that demonstrate the presence of God and his power at work. But it doesn't say. It only states the fact that the Spirit came to the Samaritans in an objective and verifiable way that Simon was able to see that. And this enticed and inflamed the sinful desire and craving in his heart to have that power and to be able to wield that power by purchasing it. He reveals that his old heart is still his present heart. Nothing has changed. He wanted his reputation back. He wanted his influence back. He wanted the people's attention back so that he could claim to be someone great again. His true identity. He was always and only interested in Philip because of the signs and miracles taking place through him. And he was only interested in the power of the apostles in order to make a name for himself and not to exalt the name of Christ. He offered them money. He thought he can purchase the gift by giving them money. He was trying to buy the Spirit's power and purchase apostolic power. He even says in verse 19, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now that sounds right and good and noble. But when he says, give this authority to me, that is an imperative command in the Greek. In other words, he starts ordering the apostles to do something for him. He commands them to do something for him. And in verse 20, we see Peter's response. He said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And once again, Peter speaks up, like he did in the case of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, in order to protect the purity and the unity of the church. Simon was a false convert and a threat to the church. And so we see Peter being very straightforward with him. When he says, may your silver perish with you, the Greek is translated more literally as to hell with you and your money. To hell with you and your money. You think you can obtain the gift of God with money? How foolish. And the word perish is the same word used to describe the son of perdition in John 17, 12, which refers in that case to Judas, whose downfall was money. It's also used in Second Thessalonians 2, 3, to refer to the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction, which is the Antichrist. It's also used in Matthew 7 to describe the destruction of those who are on the broad path 
And Peter doesn't just say to hell with you and your money. He also says in verse 21, you have no part, no portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. And the word translated matter there is logos, a word used throughout Acts to speak of the gospel, the word that is being proclaimed, the good news. Peter is saying you have no portion, no inheritance in the gospel. And this is a clear indication that Simon had not responded to the gospel. He had not responded to the word, to the truth about Christ. Rather, he had only responded to his sinful greed in his heart. And we're reminded of Jesus' words in the Gospels. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? And you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. Simon had a lust for personal influence, for authority, for power, rather than a longing and a loving of Christ and God. He didn't desire the Holy Spirit so that he may draw near to God and worship him. His heart was not right before God. Simon's heart is exposed. And there's a word of caution here for the church and especially its leaders. As we've seen these mega churches with these celebrity pastors and prosperity preachers who negatively impact people. And it's been said, quote, whenever religion is used to make someone seem great and powerful and whenever religion becomes a product by serving the interests of those who have or want money, it has become corrupt. In fact, the term simony, Simon with a Y at the end, has come into our vocabulary from this incident. And simony is defined as the attempt to secure ecclesiastical office or privilege through monetary means. And that can be through seeking to manipulate God for personal gain and influence, as is the case here with Simon. Because of this, Peter calls Simon to repent. He calls him to repent in verse 22. If you look there, it says, Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Verse 23, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. What just happened? Peter just told a professing believer who has even been baptized to repent and to come to Christ because his life was not demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit and his heart was not displaying a love for God. Love speaks truth. Love also warns. It is loving to speak truth and it is loving to warn and is loving to call all people who are in sin and down the path of destruction to repent and believe upon Christ. If not just to have a conversation, we're not God, we don't know their hearts, but at least we can have a conversation. Hey, according to the scriptures, a true believer bears good fruit. He loves the Lord. He loves the church. He loves righteousness. He loves obedience. Are you demonstrating that in your life? Is that your heart? Are you right with God? It's at least helpful to begin the conversation. Here, Peter just jumps straight to repent. But that is the where we want to get them to. To change their mind, to turn away from their sins, to turn away from the path of destruction, the broad path, and turn to follow Christ in full submission and trust and confidence in his finished work. 
Peter says of Simon that he is in the gall of bitterness. This is a term used by Moses in Deuteronomy 29, a portion of scripture that the Samaritans held to. They held to the first five books of Moses, the Torah. And so Peter uses Deuteronomy 29 to describe the bitter fruit of worshiping idols that leads to judgment. He also says that Simon is in the bondage of iniquity, which means that he is still a slave to sin. Sin is still his master. He's still a prisoner to sin. He has not been freed from sin. So does Simon repent? Does he repent? Verse 24. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. That's not repentance and humility, but rather pride and arrogance. In his response, he gives the apostles another imperative command. He commands them to do something for him. Again, pray to the Lord for me yourselves. He's telling them to do it. He doesn't consider his own heart. He doesn't consider his motives. He doesn't have a change of mind. He's more concerned about the consequences of his sin than about his sin. This is only a fear of consequence, a fear of punishment and condemnation and hell and wrath rather than a true love for God and what Christ has done. Justin Peters has said, quote, if you want a savior from hell but not a savior from sin, then you don't have a savior from either. Simon proves to be a false convert. He was able to fool and deceive people with his magic arts, but no one can fool God. Do you understand that? No one can fool the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise God. So what are some characteristics or marks of false conversion that we observe in Simon's life? And this parallels very well with 1 John. What are some characteristics or marks of false conversion that we observe in Simon's life? We see that he was still enslaved to the same passions he was enslaved to before his profession and baptism. His so-called new life looked no different than his old life. We have to remember that Christ is not something that you add to your life while you continue to live in your old sinful ways, loving the world and everything in it, yet I also believe in Christ. Christ is not something you add to your life. Christ is to be your life and is to change your life, how you think, how you live, what you do, what you worship. We also see that when confronted and that when his sin was exposed, he does not repent. There's no humility. There's no brokenness over sin. There's no grieving over his sin, his offense towards a holy God. And this demonstrates that he still loves his sin more than he loves Christ. We understand that everyone sins, but what marks a true believer is genuine repentance that turns away from sin in order to honor and please and worship and obey our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. Is that desire greater than our love for sin? We also see that his motives to believe and to be baptized were corrupt. His motives to believe and follow after Philip, associate with Philip, because all the crowd was going with Philip, 
and even to be baptized were corrupt. He only wanted to fit in with the crowd and associate himself with Philip because he was attracted to the signs and wanted to know how that was being done. He wanted the power for selfish gain. Wanting God's power and desiring God's power to be at work is not wrong. But why he wanted God's power was wrong. He wanted God's power for himself, for his own glory, for his own significance, for his own profit, for his own kingdom, rather than wanting the power of God to be at work in him so that you can be sanctified and grow in the truth as you hear it and believe it and live it out. The reality is that hell is full of people who come to follow God with false motives. People are deceived. People don't take their walk with Christ, their relationship with God, their fellowship with Him seriously. It's just a simple, I believe, and they have assurance in that belief without any demonstration of what the scriptures actually say a true believer lives and how they walk. Hell is full of people who come to follow God with false motives. Whatever the false motives may be, I want better circumstances. You talk to someone off the street, they're homeless. Oh, I, I want to believe in, in God. I want, I want my circumstances to change. I want health. I want wealth. I want prosperity. I want my best life now. I want God to fix all my problems. Or it could just be, I want to please my parents. They keep bugging me about this Christianity stuff. I want to make sure that my parents, I can put on this facade that makes them think that I'm at least a Christian, so there's at least peace in the home. Or I want to fit in with my friends. All your friends are at church and you like that group of friends. And so in order to fit in, like, I'm going to go to church. I'm a believer too. Or I want to avoid the consequences for my sins and escape the wrath of God. That's a common one. But I don't really want to know God. I don't really want to worship His Son. I don't want to depend upon the power of His Spirit to transform me and sanctify me and grow me. I don't really want to turn away from my sins. I just want to add Christ to my life. Which in reality is you don't really want to follow Christ at all. You don't want to submit to his lordship. You want the gifts, but you don't want the giver of those gifts. And you want the gifts in order to exalt and glorify yourself and not exalt and glorify the giver. Simon wanted the power of the spirit, but not the person of the spirit. He wanted the power, but not the relationship. He wanted to use the Spirit for his benefit rather than be filled with the Spirit and under the control of the Holy Spirit. He wanted to manipulate the Spirit for his own personal gain, for the recognition of his own name. And there's different ways that that works out in each of our lives where we seek to do that very thing. We also see that he became bitter when God did not give him what he wanted or when he did not get what he wanted. People can sometimes make these internal secret contracts with God. God, I'll come to you if you give me a spouse. If you fix this in my life or you fix that in my life, they'll place conditions upon God. And when that is not God's will for them, they're filled with bitterness. Simon's heart was exposed when he tried to purchase apostolic power and he didn't receive it, 
And Peter says he is in the gall of bitterness. His heart is bitter. A true believer may have expectations and plans, but the true believer understands that God is sovereign and submits to that. That whatever God ordains is right. God, if you dictate my life different than what I want it to be, I will trust you. I will follow you. I will honor you. I will obey you. And I will love you. Because you are good. And perfectly so. And you are perfectly loving. And we are your children. And you've saved us from the greatest condemnation that we can ever experience for an eternity. What else would you not do for us? You will finish what you have worked in us from the beginning all the way to the end to glorify us so that we may eternally enjoy your presence and be with your son forever. Simon had the wrong view of self. He had the wrong view of sin. He had the wrong view of the spirit. He had the wrong view of salvation. And verse 13 says, even Simon himself believed. It is possible for a person to profess Christ and to be a false convert. And that's scary. And that gives us more reason to constantly speak truth and to constantly speak, point people to the, the truth of the gospel. We never know how the truth of God will work in someone's life, whether they're professing or not professing. It is possible for a person to profess Christ and to be a false convert. In other words, to profess Christ, but not to possess Christ. It is possible to assent to the facts of the faith, but to have no real personal trust and faith in Christ. This would be a false and empty profession. It is possible to assent to the facts of the faith, but to have no real personal trust and faith in Christ. And that is a real danger for those who grow up in a Christian household. Growing up, going to church, Sunday school, children's ministry, always hearing the truth repeated over and over and over at home. They can assent to the, to the facts of the faith. They know all the answers to whatever you ask them. But if there is no true relationship with Christ, if there has been no true repentance, there has been no true conversion, there has been no forgiveness of sins, there's no true understanding of Christ and what he has done. So we're reminded that a profession alone does not save you. We're also reminded that baptism doesn't save you. Being a member of the church doesn't save you because you can be baptized and it could be a false and empty profession and you've just fooled those that baptized you. Only repentance and faith in what Christ has done and accomplished will save you. This is the importance of the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Is your heart right with God? That's a scary question to ask yourself. Is your heart right with God? But the comfort and confidence is we have the word of God that he's given to us, which reveals to us how we can know that we are right with God. And it's not based upon what we do. It's based upon belief in what only what Christ can do for us.
Is your heart right with God? Luke mentions and uses Simon to show us the greater power of the gospel and the greater power of the Holy Spirit. He recounts the spread and impact of the gospel in Samaria so that we would see the power of God at work in true conversion. To give new life, to truly forgive sins, to transform life, and to bring people together in love and unity, even those people who once hated each other. And this is not something that can be bought. This is not something that can be bargained for. Rather, this is a free gift of God. This is a free gift of God. And the kingdom of God is for all who would repent and believe, even those deemed as unclean and outcast, such as the Samaritans. And as we'll see, even an Ethiopian eunuch, as we'll see, even a Roman centurion, anyone who repents and believes in the gospel will be saved. And it is through the proclamation of the good news of the gospel, the person and finished work of Christ, that people will be saved. So church, do you see the significance of why God has called us to himself? Why God has established the church for this time? After he's worked through the history with his chosen people and chosen nation, Israel, why now the church is established for a time such as this? Why it happens after Christ has come, lived the perfect life, died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father? Why in the word of God has given us, he's given us promises that he will return. He's going to prepare a place for us. We have hope in Christ, but God has sent the promised spirit for this time to establish his people, the new covenant people, the church of God, so that we would exist in this world to be the institution and instrument of God and the authority of hope in this world to proclaim Christ and to make Christ known because it's through that and the accomplished work of Christ that when people hear those who are called and those whom Christ has died for will be regenerated and given new life from darkness into light, from death to life, from condemnation to eternal grace. That's the power of the gospel. That's the greater power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see at work here in this historical significant moment in actual church history with the inclusion of even the Samaritans and how they're now joined together with the Jews into one church. It's all because of what Christ has done. It's all because of the authority and power of the word of God. And it's all because of the Holy Spirit, the power of God at work. So may we take courage that God has given us everything that we need to be able to proclaim him faithfully and to live out the Christian faith faithfully so that those whom he has saved will come to saving faith through hearing the good news of Jesus Christ through his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even through the life of this unbelieving magician, Simon, you teach us so many different lessons. You call us to be reminded of your greater power of your word and the greater power of your spirit and how that truly changes people. That we can't hide from you, we can't fool you, we can't deceive you, but that you do desire for all to come to know you, for all to repent and believe upon your son and have, for all to have eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. 
Thank you for the testimony of your word. Thank you for the testimony of Philip who was saved and called and chosen, who went down to Samaria to proclaim Christ, to proclaim the gospel, to evangelize. And we see this great city in your plan rejoicing because they've heard the word of God. And they've been born again by your spirit to receive your your spirit and be filled with your spirit. And we'll even see how the power of your spirit will continue to spread beyond Samaria and how it has even come to us today. We're thankful for how you continue to work, how how you continue to grow your church and use your church. May we be faithful ambassadors and faithful believers who proclaim your truth. We thank you for this time. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.